The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. We have this wonderful, wonderful privilege that God has given us by faith in Christ. He promises that we will have a home in heaven. We are going to meet on that beautiful shore. Jesus said in John 17, 3, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is to know the Father. It is to have him revealed to us by faith in Christ. To be born again uh, enables you to be able to see the kingdom of God. The Bible says you must be born from above in order to meet God face to face. And that is exactly what's going to happen to all of us that are believers. We are going to see God face to face and we're going to see him in the person of Jesus Christ. The scripture says that he is the express image of the invisible God. And so when we get to heaven, there will be Jesus in a glorified body, and he will be the expression of God. He is God, and we'll see him there. Now, this is just a little bit off our subject this morning, but I thought that I would, I would just say this because it came to my mind as I was preparing the message about how shameful it is to hear people use God's name in vain. How shameful it is for people to even mention the name of Christ when they don't do it in reverence to his name. The Bible says that God is holy, his name is hallowed, and today it's just become a part of normal speech to say things like, oh my God, or to see that in text and tweets as OMG, and I'll tell you something, a Christian ought not ever to do that. We need to reverence the name of God, reverence the name of Jesus Christ. And how different it is from the Old Testament when people in those times were so reverent for the name of God and they were so afraid of breaking God's commandment that they might take His name in vain, that they wouldn't even speak His name unless it was with reverence, unless it was connected with their worship of God, something to do with a very uh, uh, sanctified process that they were going to, a holy observance. And folks, this is something that we really do need. We need renewed reverence for the name of God. And whenever we speak of Christ, it ought to be coupled with His majesty, His glory, and talking about His saving power, and not for any other reason. Now, I'd like for us to look, if you would, in our text in Revelation 21. This is John's vision of heaven. And this is not a near-death experience where John claimed to have died, saw the light at the end of the tunnel, and then he's gone to heaven and come back to tell us what it's all about. No, what we have here is an actual, true revelation from God that was given to the Apostle John in which he tells us what heaven is like. Now, in the first chapter, John said that the Spirit showed him these things. That is, all of this was opened up to him, and it was to reveal to him what's going to happen at the end when life on this earth is over with. And it all ends in the sight of heaven and the beauty of that place that God has promised to his children. This is what we read in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, 
prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now in that first verse, John said, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. Now again, from last week, uh, I hope that you remember that the new heaven and the new earth is not talking about heaven where God lives, but that's talking about the second heaven. I'll discuss that just a little bit more in just a moment. The second heaven, which is the stellar heavens. John saw a new heavens, a new stellar heavens, and a new earth that God recreates. And if we didn't know anything else about the Revelation except this chapter, we would have to ask the question, what happened to the first heaven and the first earth? Why did John say he saw a new one? Well, the preceding chapters in Revelation have much to do with that. There is upheaval, and there is sin, there is judgment, and there is a final judgment that's coming, not only on people, but there is a judgment coming on this entire world, the entire universe that has been infected by sin. God is going to pass judgment upon it all because of the curse of sin. Now, although the book of Revelation says a great deal about all things that are preceding this great event that's going to happen when God ends the world, it doesn't actually describe to us the act of destroying it. It only says that the first heaven and the first earth will pass away. So if we want more information about it, where are we going to go? Well, not to the Christian bookstore, because they don't have the solution to this. If you want to find out what's going to happen, why John saw it no more, you have to go to other parts of the Bible. Now, last week, we talked about a great cataclysm that is coming. And if you're interested in the future of terra firma, that is, the earth on which you stand, the one beneath your feet, this is what's going to happen to it. It will cease to exist. In a word, it will be uncreated. And this is what John saw in his vision. He saw the earth as it is now, and the heavens as they are now, had passed away. Now, by heaven, he meant space. He meant the uh, solar system, the galaxies, the entire universe, all of that, all of the creation, and the earth is going to pass away. Now, the earth, of course, uh, again, is a part of all of this. Uh, it will go out of existence. There is nothing that survives the great conflagration that is coming. It's going to obliterate the entire creation. Now, last week I gave you several scriptures that described what's going to happen. And we'll just refresh our memories on one of these because I think it's the very best, the clearest that we have to tell us what's going to happen. And this is what Peter wrote in his second epistle. He said, but the day of the Lord, that is the day that ends it all, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That means with great surprise, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens, being on fire, shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt 
with fervent heat. All is going to be dissolved. It disappears. Now imagine for a moment that you lived at the time of John, the time of Paul with the apostles in that first century. Greek philosophy ruled the day. Uh, if you were wise, if you wanted to know something, if you were considered to be intelligent, then you would be a follower of Greek philosophers. And the philosophers said, they were convinced that there is not anything that comes from nothing. That there is no such thing as nothing, but what is has always existed, and what is will always exist. In other words, there is no such thing as nothing. That the material universe has always been here, it always will be here. And so essentially, Greek philosophy still rules modern science. Now, it may be a little bit more sophisticated than it was 2,000 years ago, but science basically says the same thing, that something has always existed. And science has to delve into philosophy to sustain that idea, which is not really even science at all. So scientists have their natural laws of conservation of mass and the conversion of energy, which says that in a closed system such as we have, that the total mass and energy combination in the universe is always constant. And even though it might, it might, it might uh, change forms, yet the total of it, in total, is all constant. The combined amount of mass and energy do not change. So they theorize that there was a big bang and there was this compact particle that exploded. The mass of the universe exploded and that's what gave us what we see today. And science has no answer for where that particle came from. And so what they do is they turn to unscientific philosophy. And so their idea is that what is always has been. And that's a postulation that's not proven. It can't be proved. In fact, it's beyond reason to say that what is just is. But the Bible is the only place that we find an answer for that. There is something or there is someone who exists outside of the closed system and he's the one who created the world out of nothing. So there was no matter, there was no energy, there was only the self-existent God. And the Bible gives us that explanation. Hebrews 11 verse 3, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were made out of things that do not appear. God created everything out of nothing. And what God can do is He can make it all disappear into nothing. If God can create, then He can also uncreate. And that's what God will do. The heavens and the earth will dissolve. They'll go out of existence. And this is why John says the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Well, then John goes on to tell us about the new creation, that God's going to start everything over. Once again, there will be nothing, and out of nothing, God will create a new universe. Now, there'll be a new heaven and an earth. As suddenly as he destroys, God can also suddenly create. The new heaven is the new universe, not the heaven that's always been the home of God. This is the area of space known as the second heaven, and it will be completely enclosed within God's third heaven. That is the place where God lives. Heaven is an infinite place, and uh, the perfection of heaven will be the perfection of the new universe. And in this new universe is a new earth. God creates a new earth. Now, the first time 
God created the earth, it was perfect. And God stood back and pronounced all of it good. Everything on earth was good, including man that he put on the earth to exercise dominion over it. But as we know, Lucifer, who was once an angel of light, rebelled against God. And he brought that rebellion to the earth, and he tempted Adam to sin. And Adam grasped hold of what the devil tempted it with, and he said that I want that. And when Adam sinned, it was against God, and because of that sin, God cursed man, and he cursed this earth on which we live. Now, the whole matter of why God allowed that to happen is an area of theology that we don't really have time to go into today. But I do want to tell you this part of it, that God is not going to permit another rebellion. There will never be another rebellion when God creates the new heaven and the new earth. Now, if you'll look back at the previous chapter, you'll see this familiar verse that we studied several weeks ago. Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the Bible is telling us that Satan is going to be gone Satan's rebellion was in heaven at one time, but God will permit no more rebellions. All of those angels that fell originally, they're gone. They are with Satan. And God preserves the angels that were left in perfect holiness. So there's no possibility that they will ever fall, that any of them will ever sin. God keeps them in that sinless state. And the Bible also says that God is going to do that for us. There's no possibility that we will be able to sin. Now, if you'll glance down at verse number 27, it says, And there shall in no wise, that is in heaven, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, do you know why we can't fall? It's because in heaven, we're no longer descended from the first Adam. We're no longer descended from man, but now we are descended from the Holy God, from Jesus Christ Himself, who is the second Adam. And we have received the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ so that we are made like Him. And so having His nature, we're never going to be able to fall. We can never fall into sin. Now we'll talk more about these things when we get to verses 4 and 5. Uh, sin can't enter because Satan is gone. Sin can't infect the new world because there are no more fallen angels. It can't affect anyone that's in heaven because the redeemed of God have the nature of Jesus Christ. So essentially, this is what we have. We have no will. No will to sin. None of us would ever choose sin. There's no desire for it. There's no temptation for it because we are as God. And God can't be tempted with sin. Now, here's another great and glorious thought for you. Uh, whenever I go to the gravesite of a, uh, at the time when we bury a believer, I love to read what Paul said at the end of the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. There he wrote, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, for the last trump, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. Now look at that line. This corruption must put on incorruption. And that's the state that we're in in heaven. We are in a glorified body that has no corruption. Incorruptible. 
Jesus, or John rather said, when Jesus comes to raise this body, that we're going to be like Him. He said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And then if you'll look in our text, Revelation 21, verses 4 and 5, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Now a little bit later on, uh, we're going to discuss in detail verses 4 and 5 and the benefits that are received from this part of the Scripture. But I want you to see, especially right now, that it says former things are passed away. All things are gone. All the former things are gone. All things have become new. So it's a new earth that has none of the evil characteristics of the old. Now, it's a new earth, but the new earth is not heaven. It's a part of heaven. It exists as a small part of the vastness of the new existence. The universe is contained within heaven, a place that has no boundaries, and the earth is a part of that as well. Now, I want you to look at the end of verse number 1. This is where we left off last week. And, John says, and there was no more sea. The new earth does not have a sea. Now, at times, Revelation is very difficult to interpret and that's because there are symbols in the book that stand for other truths. And so we get a little bit confused sometimes. Which part are symbols? Which part, are, which part is to be taken literal? And whenever you try to uh, interpret Revelation with symbols only, you're going to run into a lot of trouble. It becomes very, very difficult for us. So we always try to interpret Revelation as much as we can in a literal fashion. Now, is the sea then is the sea that he's talking about here. Is this a literal sea? No more literal sea? Or is that figurative? Well, we're going to look at this in two ways today. A literal interpretation would say just this. There is no sea. There aren't any oceans that are on the new earth. Now, the oceans, of course, are essential in the world uh, for the world that we live in today. We need the oceans for rain. We have to have a, the hydrological cycle that's connected to the oceans because that's what waters the earth. We also need oceans in order to control the climate. Now, in California, we've hoped for an oceanic change for quite some time in order that uh, it might rain because we've been in such a drought. So the weather forecasters speak incessantly about an El Nino year, and uh, they're describing a change that takes place in the warm undercurrents that come up from South America, and they warm the ocean near to us, and we're supposed to get rain out of that. Not just rain, but lots of rain. And so we're glad to see that. We're glad for the change, and the oceans are what control our weather. Well, plant and animal life, then, are dependent upon oceans. Almost all of the water comes from them, and we know eventually we're going to be in big, big trouble if it doesn't rain around here. I mean, we're already in some trouble, so we've got to get rid of the drought. Well, the new earth is not like that. The new earth doesn't need a sea. It doesn't need oceans in order to control the weather. It doesn't need oceans for life. Plants won't need... Uh, the chemical processes that we have on this earth today, it's a different world at that time. So why might there not be a sea on this new earth? Why would John say there is no more sea? 
Well, let's think for just a minute about what the sea meant to people during the time of John. The sea was a very dangerous thing. John's readers would not think about the Pacific Ocean, probably. They knew a little bit about the Atlantic Ocean. But what they had in mind was the sea that was close to them. That would be the Mediterranean Sea. Now, John was writing from the Isle of Patmos, which is in the Aegean Sea, which flows into or is a part of the Mediterranean Sea. And so uh, people, when he said there is no more sea, that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the Mediterranean. There is no more sea. Well, the sea to them was a very, very dangerous thing. Now, John writing there from the island, uh, 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 there stuck on that island where he couldn't get off, held as a prisoner. The sea limited him. The sea kept him in. You remember when, you may remember when Paul went to Rome, when uh, he appealed to Caesar and he was sent to Rome. It was getting very late in the year and sailing on the Mediterranean was a very dangerous thing. Uh, the winds would get up during the winter time. And so what they normally did was to suspend shipping during the winter. Well, Paul's ship got a late start, and he was on his way to Rome, and he got caught in a terrible storm, and the ship was, was uh, thrown up, cast upon the rocks on the island of Malta. And the waves beat against the ship and destroyed the ship, There were 276 people that were on the ship, but by the miraculous providence of God, all of them survived. But the cargo, all of the cargo that they were transporting was lost. They had to throw all of that overboard. So the sea was a place that was not only dangerous, but it was necessary for commerce. And there was a lot of money that was lost. As merchant would, merchants would send their goods uh, uh, to other parts of the empire, and they would use the sea to transport it. So the sea was something that was a problem for them, very limiting for them. You also remember the story of Jonah and how Jonah got on the ship and he was rebelling against the Lord and God stirred up the sea and it was such turmoil that the only way that it could be calmed is for those ship, ship uh, sailors that were on the, the ship to take Jonah and throw him overboard to placate the anger of God and to calm the sea. And then when they threw Jonah overboard, what happened to him? He got swallowed by a great fish, which only enhanced the fear that they have of the sea. So when John says here, no more sea, that's good news. Uh, uh, no more sea, that's a good thing. They don't th- we don't need that. Well, the literal interpretation then says that the new earth has no sea, and this is because there is no sea. Well, how could John say no sea and there actually be a sea? Well, to do that, we have to turn to a figurative interpretation. So what could he mean by saying no more sea if we're looking at a figurative interpretation of this? I don't think that we actually have to be dogmatic about it. I think that it could have a dual meaning, that uh, perhaps there is no literal sea, but then again, maybe there is, and still he's using sea here as a symbol. So what if he is actually referring to something figurative? What would that mean? Well, usually the sea was used as an emblem for separation. That nations are separated by the oceans. The customs and languages of people are different according to where you live on the earth and the distance across an ocean can make a big difference as as far as your customs and languages and so forth are concerned. Now, in America, we have our own way of doing things. Our country is a melting pot of many different races and nationalities. Eventually, when people come here, they come around to our way of life. 
Uh, many of them abandon where the places they lived before and they don't care about their old customs any longer because they didn't really like their lives anyway. But America's a big country uh, and we have all this diversity and um, we have differences of, of things that people do. For instance, in Minnesota, uh, some of the, we have some Minnesotans in here. Uh, Minnesotans speak like Southern Canadians and we try not to let that bother us too much, but they do. Uh, but you separate people by an ocean and you get a lot of strange things. In England, you get crazy people that drive on the other side of the road. That's a problem. In Japan and China and Korea, you have people that write with squiggly lines that are impossible for us to figure out. Now, in English, we have 26 letters in our alphabet. If you are going to write in Mandarin Chinese, you have to master, just the average person has to master 8,000 characters. And if you know the whole language, you have to know 50,000 characters. Can you imagine singing the ABC song with 8,000 characters? That would be tough, wouldn't it? So what this means is that an average American student in our schools would make a very dumb agent. I'm sorry, but that would be true. So, you know, you read a high school term paper, see spot, see spot run. No, wait a minute, that's not right. How do you spell spot? Well, the Asians, can, they can do a lot better with this. I mean, they know all these things. And uh, imagine that, having to learn 8,000 characters. So you have Russian and Chinese and Japanese and Korean and Tagalog and Hindi, and you have British English. All that's crazy. All of that's just mixed up. Well, why are we so separate and diverse? What is the thing that caused this? Well, the actual cause of our diversity and why we have people on the other side of the oceans that do things so much differently than we do and the reason they speak different languages and so forth is because of one thing. Sin. Did you know that? It's because of sin. Now, here's the story of what happened. Uh, men got together. You go back to Genesis chapter 11, and there was no diversity. Everybody spoke the same language. Everybody had the same customs. No diversity at all. And men got together and they decided that they wanted to start a kingdom and to build a city and a tower and they would worship heathen gods. And so what God did was he came and he confused their speech. You put, you know, no diversity, that's a good thing, but you put people into the middle of it, it can be a bad thing. People always turn these things into sin. So they wanted to build that tower and what God did was to confuse their speech so they couldn't understand each other. So they stopped building their tower because nobody could follow directions. So what happened from there was that people began to scatter. And groups that spoke one particular language, they gathered together. They moved to different areas and so forth. And so we got people living on other sides of the ocean and so forth. Uh, so all of this happened way back here in Genesis chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. And that's where we get the term Babel today. It's the confusion of language. Well, the C stands for that kind of separation. It's the separation of moving people apart from one another. Everybody in heaven, though, is together. Everybody in heaven speaks the same language. Everybody understands each other. So what language would they speak in heaven? Well, it has to be English, of course. I mean, haven't you read the King James? I mean, you've got, you've got the Jews, and you've got the apostles, and you've got Moses, and... They're all speaking English. As they say, the King James is good enough for Moses and Paul. It's good enough for me. So that's what they speak in heaven. 
Well, we actually don't know what the language is in heaven. There are some who suggest that the language is Hebrew. That might be a, might be a pretty good choice. Uh, some say, it's, well, it's an angelic language. You talk to charismatics and they'll say, well, that's an angelic language. And they claim that they can speak in an angelic language, which pretty much is still babble. Lots of gobbledygook and things like that. Well, maybe it's Hebrew, but when you think of Hebrew, you think of phlegm. And I don't think there's any phlegm in heaven, so this may be phlegmless Hebrew. That's okay, too. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything about this, though, uh, about that particular thing. But this we do know. There is no separation in heaven. Language and race are all the same. We are all God's new race. We are all new creatures in Christ. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, in dealing with how God has broken down all the walls of separation between us, and in this uh, passage of Scripture, Ephesians 2, he's talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles, but that stands for the whole world in this sense, that God breaks down all the walls of separation between us when we become like Him. So he says, For He is our peace, who hath made both one, both one, that is, uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For, though, for through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. No more see is what John says. And if that's figurative, it may stand for there is no separation between the nations. And if that's the case, then we praise God for no more see. Now, you've listened to me this morning, and you'll probably say how, how insensitive and politically incorrect that he is because of some of the things I've just said. But that was on purpose, so forgive me. It's all on purpose just to show you this, that when we get to heaven, there are no jokes at anybody's expense. All of that's gone. All the diversity, all prejudices are gone. We are all one people in Jesus Christ. Now, this brings us to verse number 2 of the text. Verse 1 gave us the cataclysm and the new creation. And now in verse 2, there is another new spectacular thing. And that is the capital. Verse 2, And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the holy city of the new Jerusalem. It's a city that comes down out of heaven. What would that tell us? Well, it tells us that the New Jerusalem is not heaven itself, but the New Jerusalem is a part of heaven. And this New Jerusalem is actually a place that has definite dimensions to it. We'll discuss dimensions at another time. But it's a definite place with definite dimensions, and it's the capital of this vast kingdom that is called heaven. I suppose our first thought would be, how much does God love Jerusalem? How much does God love Jerusalem? Folks, as Americans, we need to be on the side of Israel. We need to be on the side of Israel because God loves His people. God loves Jerusalem. The heavenly city is named after Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. It's always been known. Jerusalem has always been known as the holy city of God. Now, here's an interesting little twist to this, if you'll... 
Turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. And let me give you just a little bit of background on this scripture as you're looking for it. This is about 450 years before the birth of Christ. Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed about 100 years before this, and many of the people were deported to Babylon. And for 70 years in Babylon, the people cried out to God because of what they had lost. And they wept when they fought about Jerusalem. And all they could think of was returning to the holy city. Jerusalem was called the holy city because that's the place where the temple was. That's the place where the worship of God was. And the entire nation came to Jerusalem to the temple for worship. Well, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the people were allowed to come back and to rebuild the temple and the city walls. But at this time, the people were very poor. Jerusalem had been reduced to a rubble heap and was no longer a place where people wanted to live. Now, you look at these uh, interesting verses in Nehemiah 11, 1 and 2. It says, And the rulers of the people dwelt at Jerusalem. Listen. But the rest of the people also cast lots to bring one of ten to dwell in Jerusalem, the holy city, and nine parts to dwell in other cities. And the people blessed all the men that willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. Now you see this? They couldn't get people to move to Jerusalem. Now before, people loved the city. You can't have a city without inhabitants, and nobody wanted to live in the city. So what they did was they put all the names of the heads of families into a pot. And they drew out of that pot, and for every ten names that they drew out, one family had to move to Jerusalem. Now, they held this lottery, and what you got here was not something good, not a big prize that they thought, but you got Jerusalem. That's what you get for winning the lottery. And they didn't really want to live there. So there were some that voluntarily went to live in Jerusalem. And so the people considered that to be a great sacrifice. Well, why wouldn't people want to live in Jerusalem? It's because Jerusalem was the most troubled city the world had ever seen. And who is to say that there's not going to be another invading army that comes along and destroys the city again? So they didn't want to live in Jerusalem. So here we have this, this city of God that has to have people forced to live there, so to speak. But there are some that were willing to go. But how different is the picture that we have in Revelation 21 verse 2? The new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven and it's so spectacular that there's no one who would ever refuse to live there. This is not the old city. This is not the old one that you read about in the, in the Old Testament. It's not the one that you see today. This is a new Jerusalem. It has none of the characteristics of the old. Now, this new Jerusalem is not an urban renewal project. You take a trip to Jerusalem today and the city is old. It's an old city, just that. It's old. It's old, it's dirty, it's dingy, it's cramped. I don't think that anybody would ever want to go there if it wasn't for the religious history of the city. They don't go there because it's beautiful, but it's the history of it. This old Jerusalem is called the holy city. Isaiah 52, verse 1. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall be no more come unto thee the uncircumcised, and the unclean. Now that verse is about Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. The city is going to be great then. The king of kings will, will rule from there in a magnificent new temple. That's in the new Jerusalem, in, or the Jerusalem in the millennial kingdom. 
Jesus will rule from the throne of David there. But the city and the millennium is still on this old earth. And this old earth is cursed. And the old earth has to be destroyed. So, it's not completely purged of sin, even though Christ's temple is there. The city is not perfect, not the one that we see in Revelation 21. Now, turn back a page or so to Revelation 20 and the seventh verse. It says, and when the thousand years are expired, that's the time of Christ's kingdom on the earth, when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Now there you see Jerusalem in the millennium, and it's assaulted. Men in the kingdom are still sinners. They're going to surround the city and attack it, and what God will do is send down fire from heaven to devour them all. Well, what happens then to Jerusalem? What happens to the new temple that's been built there? It also gets destroyed. It gets destroyed in the great conflagration that's coming in which the earth on which we live is destroyed. Now, I can imagine that John was like all Jews. That John loved the city of Jerusalem. Here he is sitting on the Isle of Patmos. I'm sure that he would much rather have been in Jerusalem, except for this, that about 20 years before, the Romans had come and destroyed Jerusalem again. And one million Jews were killed just before that. So here is John sitting uh, uh, on this island of Patmos. And he's thinking about what God has given him in the Revelation. And over in the 11th chapter, it says there that the city that uh, we know today is going to be trampled by the Gentiles, by the Antichrist, during the tribulation time. And they're going to trample all over the holy sites of the city. And it's going to be overrun with Gentiles who have no respect for God. They're following the Antichrist. And so God is going to send two powerful witnesses to them to preach to them. But look what happens to them. They're murdered. Revelation 11:8, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So Jerusalem then is so wicked that it's called Sodom. It's also called Egypt that stands for that dark night of, the, of Israel's bondage. Jeremiah also describes it this way, I've seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers, that none doth return from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom, and the inhabitants thereof as Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. He uses the two most wicked places that the world has ever seen to be emblematic of the sin that is in Jerusalem. Oh, there's no question about what God thinks about those sins. And so John must have sorrowed deeply in his heart for Jerusalem. Now he's seen the holy city destroyed. That great cataclysm of exploding fire has obliterated it. It goes out of existence. But then, in his sadness and to his delight, his eyes are opened to a new world. There's a lush, new, green, beautiful place like nothing that he's ever seen. John was disfigured because he was boiled in oil before he was sent to the island of Patmos. So there he is, this, 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 this disfigured, uh, disfigured man. And he sees this new universe and new heaven and a new earth. And then if that's not enough, he looks up and he sees 
a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven out of God, for, from, from God, this sparkling, luminous, glorious city comes down out of heaven. What is that city? It's the new Jerusalem. It's God's capital of His vast kingdom of heaven. Surely his mind must have gone back to Abraham where it says in Scripture that he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. And there the Scriptures crystallized in front of John as he saw the new Jerusalem come. The Apostle Paul also referred to it in Galatians 4.26. He said, but Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. In Hebrews 11 or 12:22 it says, "But ye are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels." What an interesting phrase. Jerusalem is the mother of us all. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that the one who came from that city the one who stepped down from his throne of glory in heaven, that magnificent throne, he is the one who gives us life. John 3.3 says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again is the word anothen, and that means born from above. And in that sense, Jerusalem is the mother of us all. Jerusalem is where Christ was crucified, and the new Jerusalem is where He lived in heaven before He came to this earth. Well, I've run out of time for today. There's much more here. John went, he went on to, to try and describe this city. It's like a bride, he says, that's adorned for her husband. It's a city without darkness, a place of fabulous wealth and eternal bliss. But always, the main attraction of heaven and of the new Jerusalem is that Jesus is there. Nobody goes there unless He gives them birth. The Bible says you have to be born from above if you'll meet God face to face. We don't preach enough about heaven. We don't know enough about heaven and what it's like. Richard Baxter, the Puritan, described it as the saint's everlasting rest. Do you know that you're going to heaven? Some people say you can't be sure of that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you can be absolutely sure that heaven is your home. And it tells you the way that you can know is by faith in Jesus Christ. The only way that you can be born from above is for God to touch your heart, to give you faith. You repent and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Then you are born from above. Jerusalem is your mother. Jesus Christ, God is your father. And here you are, saved and on your way to that holy city of the new Jerusalem. Oh, if you believe, you're born from above. Jesus promised that all that are born again will go to heaven with Him. So I encourage you, trust Him. Know Him today as your Savior. And all who do will meet Him again in that glorious home. In the sweet by and by, as Brian sang, in the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. I hope that you're headed for heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again today to be able to read the Scriptures and think about this wonderful place that you promised for us. Lord, uh, we're talking to uh, believers mostly today because heaven is the home of those who trust you. And there might be someone here today 
who can't say for sure that they know that they're going to be in heaven. They don't know you as Savior. They, they haven't put their faith and their trust in you. They haven't repented of their sins and placed all their confidence in you to take them to heaven. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to see that there's nothing good that we can do. There's nothing that we can offer you that will help us to get there. We have to depend wholly and solely upon Jesus Christ, who did it all for us at the cross of Calvary, who was crucified, buried, and rose again for our justification. Lord, help someone to see that today. Open their eyes to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bbaptist.org.